0: The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Welcome to this year's Refocus Gathering. Uh, my name is Steve Lee, I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Community Church. If you don't know who I am, and I just I don't want to take up any more time, but really introduce our guest speaker for this year's Refocus. He is Dr. Jerry Root, and uh, man, I, I had to just selectively choose from his list of uh, qualifications, you know, because there's so many, but he is the professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College, and he's been on the faculty of Wheaton since '96. He's the director of the Institute for Strategic Evangelism at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton. And he also teaches, in addition to his teaching on evangelism, uh, in the Christian formation and uh, ministry department at Wheaton. He is also a visiting professor at Talbot Graduate School of Theology and Biola University. And in addition to his heart for evangelism, he is a C.S. Lewis scholar, and has written uh, numerous books on Lewis. He and his wife, Claudia, uh, who I believe will be joining us tomorrow, uh, have four grown children and 13 grandchildren. Um, Jerry Root was actually our guest speaker for our retreat, our ICC retreat, two years ago. And uh, what I think struck everyone at Emmanuel um, was that uh, Jerry is passionate about evangelism because we saw firsthand Jerry's love for people. Um, it was interesting when we invited him to our retreat. You know, uh, I thought like, you know, like you're just asked to speak these four times, and you know, in between those spaces, just go ahead and you could go to the hotel and get some rest. And and what he said at the very start of the retreat was, "I'm here for your church this weekend. Use me." You know, and. And so almost every spare moment of that retreat, he was counseling and advising uh, individual church members. I felt so bad. I was trying to tell our church, leave the guy alone, you know, let him get some rest. But there was literally like lines just waiting to talk to him. And I was just blown away by his patience and his love with which he talked with every single person and gave them such individual attention. I shared the story at the very end of our retreat, but there wasn't enough space at our retreat center, and so about a dozen families had to actually stay at a hotel that was near the retreat center. And so Jerry stayed at the hotel, and I stayed at the hotel. And on the final Sunday morning, when we were all checking out, I went to approach the front desk, and Jerry was a little ahead of me to head to the front desk. And when the hotel clerk actually saw Jerry, she just had this huge smile show up on her face, And she looked at Jerry and she said, Jerry, I missed you. (laughs) And that just blew me away because I had never heard a hotel clerk tell me that they missed me. Um, And I was like, what kind of interaction did he have with this person that they actually missed him, you know? Um, But I think that really spoke volumes to the fact that he's not just a professor of evangelism. He's a disciple of Christ who embodies the love of Christ. And so he is passionate about evangelism because he just simply loves people, whether they're people in the church or people who are lost and without Christ. And so let me echo that sentiment of that hotel clerk by saying, Jerry, we've missed you. And So let me welcome you forward to speaking with. Thank you, Steve.
1: that goes both ways I've missed you I'm grateful to be here again it's good to be with Steve and Betty it's also good to be with uh, Jacob and Elizabeth Matthews and um, a colleague of mine at Wheaton College we work with the uh, evangelism initiative at Wheaton uh, Yuli Lee attends here and it's really great to be here with her and her husband David also um, I want to pray again, if you don't mind, after I read a text of scripture from Revelation 19, starting with verse 4, and the 24 elders, the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, this is a room full of people, everyone with unique challenges on his or her heart. It's impossible to think that one person might say something before them that could touch every heart. It's actually a ludicrous transaction if you're not in it. But one time, your son took crumbs, five loaves and two fish, By the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he multiplied them, blessed them, and distributed them, so every one of those 5,000 people left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that again today among us? And take the crumbs that are being offered up here, and let each person hear something, because your Holy Spirit has applied it to the, the hearts of those gathered, that each person would hear something whereby they would sense I am loved individually and particularly by God because he gave me what I needed to hear this evening. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. C.S. Lewis once said, Getting to know God is like taking bearings on the bright blur. He becomes brighter and more and less and less blurry. Lucy, the, the most spiritually sensitive person from our world to go into Narnia, saw Oslan, the Christ figure of that world, for the first time on her second entrance into Narnia. She said, Oslon, you're bigger. He said, no, child, I am not, but every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And this is what I want us to do this weekend, is find God bigger. And find God bigger in such a way that we would begin to redefine our lives by who we are in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that it would ignite our hearts in such a way that as we refocus on him, we'll also refocus on his mission in the world. Um, I, Anthony Trollope, the, the Victorian author, once said, only the preacher can compel people to sit still and be tortured. <laughs> I, I know this isn't true. We professors do it far better. <laughs> because we hold grades over students' heads, you see. If you've ever read the Gorgias by Plato, it's all about rhetoric, or at least it starts out about rhetoric. The rhetorician, the persuasive person, better be a just person, let's say persuade a person to do something against their will. How do you engage in the evangelistic enterprise without being coercive, without being abusive? How do you engage in any kind of persuasive activity and still remain a just person? Rendering to things their proper due. The 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 image that we get from C.S. Lewis in my study of him is he seems to get shoulder to shoulder with somebody. And he tries to describe something that's out here that is, he describes this. I become so fascinated by this, I need him less and less. And consequently, I stay inclined towards this. When we share the gospel, that's what it's about. Not trying to persuade people face to face, but point them. To Jesus, to point them to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they might begin to adjust the scoliosis of their souls by the plumb line of the very character and nature of God. In Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this great example where he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, king Uzziah had been king 52 years. If there's a transition of power You'd have to have probably been in your 70s to have had any clarity of what that might be like. And here in the year of King Uzziah's death, a king who represented human stability on a political level, I saw the Lord, lofty and exalted, the whole train of his robe filling the temple, security here. And he says that he heard the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as soon as Isaiah sees God, he's defining himself as he refocuses on him. And he realizes that he is a person who's sinful. Um, in medieval spirituality, they developed their whole process of spiritual maturity from this vision. And so the first stage was the purgative stage, the awareness of my brokenness. But Isaiah doesn't avert his eyes. He continues to look, and he sees that God directs a seraphim to take a coal and touch his lips and cleanse him. And this was the second phase of spiritual maturity, the recognition that there is grace that is given. And broken and messed up as I am, God is not finished with me. He has grace to offer. Isaiah continues to look, and he hears the Lord say, who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, Lord, Lord, please find a place for me in that program because I want you to send me. It's called the unitive phase. It's the sign of maturity in medieval spirituality when we unite ourselves with the purposes of God and feel deployed into his world to do what he wants us to do. R.C. Sprawl, the theologian, once did a series on the holiness of God. He took his marks, remarks initially from this Isaiah 6 passage. It's a wonderful series, that series, if you ever have a chance to listen to it or have it in a Sunday school class here, but Sprawl made a mistake. I actually talked with him once about this. He said that the holiness of God is the archetypal attribute of God. If it's an archetypal attribute, then it brings it into a different classification than the other attributes. Why did he suggest that? Because it's the only attribute that we hear thrice mentioned. Holy, holy, holy. You never hear truth, truth, truth. Love, love, love. Just, just, just. Well, that's clever, but I don't think it's right. And a biblical theologian would remind us that when the seraphim were speaking, John 12 says they were also referring to Jesus. They saw Jesus. Acts 28 says when they were speaking, they saw the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the thrice-mentioned holy, holy, holy is basically Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. When we talk about the nature of God, when we talk about adjusting the scoliosis of our soul to the very character of God as we refocus on Him, we need to remember that He is a God who exists in Trinity We'll never get to the bottom of who God is. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We can know these things. Theology was born out of mission. People went about trying to share the gospel. There was lack of understanding, so the Christians would gather together and say, how can we present this better? If you look at the councils, uh, most of the councils grew out of controversies. And consequently, they tried to resolve some of these things. They sought to take scriptures and distill them into transferable teachings called doctrines to catechize believers, maturing them towards maturity in faith, and also to deploy them to evangelize in their world. The Trinitarian doctrine was basically refined and the two natures of Christ clarified at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Council of Constantinople in 381, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And how was it distilled? Basically this way. There's one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the second person has two natures. How do we understand that? Well, let me put it in context because we're trying to talk about evangelism also. At Wheaton College, we have a limo service that we contract with. So if a professor has to fly someplace, we can get a limo from our class, go to the airport. Then when we come back, the limo service picks us up at the airport, brings us back to the school. And, and I, I do this limo service frequently. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people about Jesus well, I'm in the limo. Uh, one time I was coming back from the airport, and this man picked me up, and, and he said, uh, it says here, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What do you do there? I, I said, well, I, I'm a professor. He said, well, what are you a professor of? Well, if you say evangelism, the conversation ends usually right there. <laughs> so I, I, I said, well, my degree, my doctorate's actually in philosophy of religion. He says, well, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. How about you? He says, I'm a Muslim. And then he said to me, what's the difference between Islam and Christianity? I said, well, I've only read about half of the Quran, so I'll defer to you on matters of Islam, but I, I've read my Bible plenty of times, and I think I can distill it for you basically. I said, first off, no Christian believes that God came down and cohabited with a woman, and that's where Jesus came from. Most Muslim scholars don't believe that. But on a popular level, there are a lot of Muslims who do. And this man, Hafiz, he was very surprised when I told him that because he had believed that falsehood. Get that off the table so we don't have that standing between us and a clear presentation of the gospel. And then I said, the biggest difference, I think, Hafiz, is in this. In your Surah 3 and Surah 6, it says you don't believe in a God of Trinity. We believe in a God of Trinity. And I said it works like this. Let me ask you three questions. Do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? Oftentimes a person will say to you, what do you mean by that? And you have to say, if you say contingent, it would mean that its existence is dependent upon something else. Uh, This chair is contingent, if Aristotle was here, on a formal cause, a pattern after which it was made, a material cause, the lumber from which it was made. Uh, An efficient cause, the carpenter who made it. And a final cause, that it could be used here in the church sanctuary. Hafiz got it, and he says, he's non-contingent. I said, do you believe God's a God of love? I've had this conversation with at least 200 Muslims, and every one of them says, yes, I believe he's a God of love. You wouldn't have expected that, maybe. You might have expected, I believe he's a merciful God, or a good God, or a just God. But they've all said, yes, a God of love. Third question, who's the object of his love? And they're reduced to saying his creation is the object of his love. And then you say, but if God needs creation to fulfill his nature, you have a contradiction in your theology. Because if he is non-contingent and he needs creation to fulfill his nature, you've got a non-contingent and contingent God, and that's irrational. And then I said to him, relational attributes in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship is necessary in God. He said to me, I'm tracking with you. Whenever you have a moment of disequilibrium, it's always a predicate towards any kind of change or growth. My present conceptual framework doesn't work anymore, and consequently, I need to give myself over to some sort of new possibility. Change of kind, wipe out the old way, change of degree, add some rings to the tree, and grow and girth. So he said, I'm tracking with you no less than 18 times in that conversation. And then I said to him, you know, Hafiz, another difference is all the religions in the world, all of them, they pretty much have these three things in common, according to Rudolf Otto, the great German uh, philosopher of religion. They all believe in a divine essence. They believe that, that, that there's something transcendent. They'll define it differently if they're an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a monotheist, or a monotheistic Trinitarian, but they all believe in some divine essence. He said, I'm tracking with you. I said, second, they all believe in a moral law that people fail to keep. We can't even live up to our own standards. We believe in the high ideal of love, but we have sharp words with sometimes people we say we love most in the world. He said, I'm tracking with you. I said, in third, all the great world religions believe that the divine essence is a custodian of the moral law, and if I failed at the moral law, I've offended the divine essence. He says, I'm tracking with you. He says, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in life after death. I believe in hell, and I don't want to go there. I'm trying to live life as best I can. I said, Havis, do you believe God's a perfect being? He said, yes. I said, how's your doing the best you can, working for you? He said, I live in fear. I said, Hafiz, you don't have to live in fear. And he wanted to know why. And I said, because this God who exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a relational being who loves. And he extends his love to us in Christ. And Christ loves you, Hafiz. And not only does he love you, he loves you so much that he's been willing to forgive all of your sins if you will trust him. He will forgive your sins. And he will give you the hope of eternal life. And not only that, the chaos that we make of our life, he's willing to condescend, enter into our life as Lord, and begin the process of bringing order out of that chaos. He says, that's the most comforting thing I have ever heard. I said, Hafiz, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ? Right now, he said none. And he prayed out loud in that limousine with me to trust Christ, this Muslim. And I began doing follow-up with him after that. This is the thing. There's so much confusion about the doctrine of of the Trinity. But I think if we're going to refocus on God, we need to understand he's a relational being. He calls us into relationship with him, and he calls us to be his ambassador to go out and invite others into relationship with him. I think the confusion for me was really underscored one time. I was candidating at a church. It's a horrible phrase, isn't it? Candidating at a church. I don't know how we got that. Maybe, Steve, you can enlighten me afterwards. How we ever came up with the term candidating for pastors going to look at churches. But anyway, this church I was going to, it had had a pastor who was extremely doctrinaire. He had no opinions. Everything was a thus saith the Lord across his point of view. It was a big church. He had built a, a sanctuary for 5,000 people. There were 5,500 who attended the church. <clears throat> and this guy had doctrinal statements about everything. I came up with a phrase called pasta machine theology at that time. You know a pasta machine, you dial the noodles you want, put the dough on top and crank it out. He had put the Bible on top, dialed the theology he would want, kind of cranked it out. He had a position on everything. But he had a moral breakdown, and he did some bad things. And he had to leave the church, and about 2,000 people left with him. So here was this church for 5,500. 3,500 were attending, and I go there to preach, and the first people were like 20 rows back from where I was preaching. I went to the meeting uh, with the board of of elders the next day, and they were going to interview me. And they said to me, Uh, so what do you think of our doctrinal statement? And I said, well, frankly, it was condemned as heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That went over like a lead balloon. They said, what do you mean? And I said, it says in your doctrinal statement that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God the Father. He's not. He's the incarnation of God the Son. You've confused the persons in the Godhead, and that's Sibelian modalism. It was one of the heresies condemned at Nicaea. They said, wow, nobody ever pointed that out to us before. It was a doctrinaire church, almost Pharisaical. The, 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 the things were drawn so tight that everybody had to be sort of in a group think at that place. So they said, well, this church has been around for 100 years. This was in our charter This doctrinal statement, those who set up the church said, we can't ever touch the doctrinal statement or we'd have to dissolve the church. That's too many legal hoops for us to jump through, so we're not going to change it. I said, well, second question. You know, you thought, well, what do you think of the two natures of Christ? What's your view of the authority of Scripture and its inerrancy? What's your view of uh, uh, philosophy of ministry? What's your marriage like? The last guy's marriage melted down. These would have been questions I would have assumed would have come next. Their next question was, what do you think about drinking? I go, wow, that's interesting. I said, my wife and I will have a glass of wine after a meal in the evenings. If I'm in England, I might go to a pub and have a Guinness. I said, uh, if I teach at Wheaton or Biola, at those days they had a standard where you couldn't drink if you taught on those campuses. I said, I'm a rule keeper, not a rule breaker. I abide by the rules. They said, oh. Well, you could be a member at this church and drink, but to be on staff, you can't refrain from drinking while you're on staff. You can never have had a drink in your life. So you're not a candidate here anymore. So I started packing up my stuff. This elder looks at me and says, what do you think about that? I said, if that's your standard for leadership, that's fine. It'll help you narrow the field a little bit. He said, what do you really think about it? I said, I think it's incredible that you have a standard for leadership at this church. You, you, one, you harbor major heresy in your doctrinal statement, and you have a standard for leadership that would exempt Jesus or the Apostle Paul from ever serving at your <laughs> church. But it helped me see that there was, there was a, a, a lack of understanding of this doctrine. I ended up actually going to another church to pastor They had the exact same phrase in their doctrinal statement. It was in Santa Barbara, California. It was the biggest church in Santa Barbara. If you believe in Jesus, when you die, you go to Santa Barbara. (laughs) But my experience was that church was a very difficult place when I went there. The amazing thing to me, however, was when I got there, their doctrinal statement said the same thing. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God the Father. They said, what do you think of our doctrinal statement? I pointed it out. They didn't understand. Nine full-time pastors at that church, they had no clue what I was talking about. And I, I explained it to them. I ended up going to that church and thinking, what I'll do is I'll try to preach warm theology so people get it with their head and hopefully it connects with their heart and affects their life because we adjust the scoliosis of our soul to the plumb line of God's character. Well, interestingly enough, one of the pastors told me when i got there that after that meeting he went to the secretary and said we've got heresy in our doctrinal statement she says oh i'll just change it in the next printing (laughs) so the one wouldn't change it at all and the other one was so cavalier they even said to me when i got there you can do whatever you want with our doctrinal statement (laughs) oh my heavens well anyway while i was at that church i preached a sunday sermon and this guy after about three weeks, came running up to me at the parking lot. Look at he split. He's got a woman in tow and three kids. And he says, "How dare you talk about the Trinity all the time?" It's an embarrassing doctrine. One God, three gods. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's illogical. We, should, we would be better off if we just jettisoned that doctrine altogether." I said, "Sir, my name is Jerry. What's your name?" He said, "Mike." I said, "Mike, is this your wife?" He says, yes. What's her name? Priscilla. Priscilla, it's nice to meet you. I said, Mike, are these your children? He said, no, these are Priscilla's children. My children live with their mother in Cincinnati. I said, well, Mike, first off, let me say this. It's not an illogical doctrine. We don't say one God, three gods. If we did, that would be illogical. We say one God eternally existent in three persons. That may be difficult to grasp, but it's not inherently contradictory. People who tried to define this doctrine were so careful and so precise in their use of words because they wanted understanding and clarity. One God, eternally existent, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, second person has two natures, human and divine. You say it's an embarrassing doctrine. You say we wish we could jettison it. But I can see that there's been suffering in your life. I don't know what caused the brokenness but certainly there's been brokenness. As a matter of fact, Mike, we live in a broken world. What could be more relevant in that world that at the core of the universe is a relationship? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An eternal love relationship. And he creates that he might invite us to participate with him. It's a broken world, and consequently then, as we begin to look at him and understand more of his love, and we begin to focus on him, it seems to us that that would be transformative to us in relationship. What did Jesus say was the great commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We could expect that that might be so from a God in whom love is central to his being. Okay, so what I want to do then, we got the Trinity thing I mean, we didn't solve the whole thing, right? But I think you can have a sure word even if you don't have a last word. Um, You can have a sure word and speak with confidence about the sure word. The fact that you don't get a last word means you hold what you know with an open hand so that you have humility knowing you don't get a last word, which keeps us inclined, keeps us studying, keeps us growing, keeps us always open to the possibility of re-encountering wonder and awe. In the majesty of God, like we read just a bit ago from Revelation, where they're standing before the throne, hailing His glory and majesty. Okay, so we've got Trinity. Now I want us tonight to focus on the character of God and what does that mean for our evangelism? Tomorrow morning we'll foc- or tomorrow after evening, we'll focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. What does that mean to us for evangelism? And then Sunday morning, we'll focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and see how God has given us the great resource of the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ to do his work in the world. So let's, let's now look for a minute at the doctrine of God. Calvin had said in the Institutes that we, we cannot know God properly unless we know ourselves. Because I think if we know ourselves honestly, we know we're broken, and we know we need help, that turns us to him and openness. But he also says, you cannot know self unless you know God. So somehow these things blend together, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And when we know ourselves, what do we begin to discover? Um, I want to suggest to you that man, men and women, mankind, humankind, we are good by nature. Good by nature. The preposition by is the operational thing here good by nature fallen and broken and desperate in nature and the preposition in is very important there let me see if I can distill it for you theologically at least four areas of theology are affected by your view of man one is your doctrine of God your theology proper if man is essentially sinful God would have had to have made us essentially sinful But the scriptures say of 1 John, in him there is no darkness at all. And when God made us, he made us good. What what do we say of human nature? The imago dei, the image of God. Uh, Second is your doctrine of Christ. Do we believe that Jesus became fully man? If sin is essential to our nature, Jesus would have had to become a sinner. But the scriptures are explicit. He was tested in all points as we, yet without sin. Sin was not in him at all. Also, your biblical anthropology, third doctrine. Biblical anthropology, there's four examples of humankind in Scripture. Adam and Eve before the fall, sin's not there. Adam and Eve and all who follow afterwards, that's the category we find ourselves in. Sin is present. Sin in nature. It's an intrusion. It's something that entered in for an object. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And then you have uh, Christ and his humanity, sin's not present. And man in his glorified state, when we get to heaven and we'll be singing the songs we read at the beginning of our time here, the kinds of songs we were singing earlier together, I don't know about you, I am weary of my brokenness. I am tired of my sin. I'm tired of the incongruity. I can't wait till I can be fixed. Four categories of humankind in Scripture, sins present in one. It can't be the definitive characteristic. And then lastly, when we talk about refocusing on God so we can refocus on mission, how about the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation? If you see a pig wallowing in the mire, you don't go kick the pig. Why? Because the, the pig is living according to its nature. doesn't have sweat glands. It's got to wallow to keep its body cool. Dogs don't have sweat glands either. What do they do to keep themselves cool? They pant. If you saw a pig wallowing in, sin, uh, in, in uh, mud and, and filth, you don't go kick the pig. You let him go because he's living according to his nature. But if you see a person living in sin and degradation, if you believe that their nature is evil, then let them go. Don't talk to them about Jesus. They're living according to their nature. But when you go present the gospel to something, aren't you saying to that person, you're living beneath your nature. You're not living according to the way that God designed. You study the whole flow of Scripture. Man is made in the image of God. We have fallen. Sin in nature. Made good by nature. Sin in nature. And the whole redemptive history is God seeking to restore the image of Christ in us. We'll talk more about that tomorrow when we look at the Lord Jesus. But the point is this. God created us, and he created us good, and he created us with purposes. Creation implies intention. Every time a potter throws clay on a wheel to make something, she has in mind exactly what she wants to make, a cup, a bowl, a pitcher, a vase, whatever. Creation implies intention. Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, He wrote the Vita Nuova, talking about when he first met Beatrice, and then he writes the Divine Comedy 25 years later. But between those, he wrote two books, The Combivo and The Demonarchia. The Demonarchia of the Monarch. About two or three pages into that book, he says this, function precedes essence. Let me say it again. Function precedes essence. The purpose God had for you, he had for you before he ever gave you your birth and the essence that you have in order to fulfill the function. Uh, If you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, he made light on day one, the function. He doesn't make the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars, till day four. You were never a surprise to God. God always knew you. He never had, he, he doesn't think like we think. He doesn't begin with a presupposition and through a series of inferences, reasons to a conclusion. The ancients said all knowledge was immediate to him. He always knows. He always sees. He always knew you. He always loved you. He always wanted you. How many times we look at other people and we say, oh, if only I was like that person. Oh, if only I could do what that person did. And we live our life in such discontent. And we lose out on seeing ourselves with the same delight that God saw us, and seeing other people with the same delight with which He made them, and doing evangelism, seeing people who are deeply loved by God, and seeing them with all the possibility of them beginning to achieve the very function that God had purposed in them. Function precedes essence. And his purposes were not thwarted by our rebellion and our fall. He came to Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. Remember, he said, where are you? You think he was gathering information? Oh, man, I lost them. They were in the garden a bit ago. No, he knew where they were, but they didn't know where they were. We can't know God properly unless we know ourselves. And they were covering themselves up, hiding. They weren't realistic. Where are you, Adam and Eve? He knew He wanted them to take stock. But he did not need information, but he came to them immediately after they fell. That's the heart of God. His work is a history of pursuing the fallen, the broken, the marginalized, the confused, even those who have inflicted pain on others. Look at Moses. He was a murderer. God came to him in the burning bush. Look at David. He had sinned egregiously and then tried to cover it up with murder, and God came to him by sending him the prophet Nathan. Look at Paul. God came to him on the Damascus Road. He was engaged in such horrible things. But God came to him. That's the heart of God. Even the curse that God gave after the fall was a form of grace in a fallen world. matter of fact, Nehemiah said it was a characteristic of God that he turned the curse into a blessing. Joseph said it to his own brothers, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled and they will not be thwarted. Um, it, it's interesting to me, there's a, there's a great line, it's a throwaway line in C.S. Lewis's academic book. I, I just finished a book, it went into the publisher uh, at the beginning of this month called The Neglected C.S. Lewis and we look at eight books that Lewis uh, that people don't read. His best books are his literary criticism. People don't read them. Lewis said, all of my books are evangelistic. What do you mean by that? Some of them are literary critical. He meant that we we don't need more books by Christians about Christianity. We need more books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent, So they present a whole Christian integrated worldview. Well, anyway, so we did this book on the neglected C.S. Lewis. We look at eight books that nobody reads. I'm convinced nobody's going to read this book I just did because (laughs) if it's on the book that nobody reads, then you're... Yeah, I mean, it's something ludicrous about writing a book about the books nobody reads, but nevertheless, one of these books is The Allegory of Love. It was a book that established his literary critical powers in Oxford. came out in 1936, about five years after he became a Christian. Matter of fact, what is today? Today's the 27th, right? Tomorrow is the day, the anniversary day of C.S. Lewis's conversion. It's interesting. Um, But in this book, The Allegory of Love, there's a throwaway line, it's on page 60. He says, innocence is not goodness. Innocence is not goodness. Even divine nature, even in her prime, cannot make a virtue a gift. Innocence is not goodness. He's not saying innocence is not good. It's good in that it's unspoiled. But it's not proven character. Adam and Eve were innocent, but they didn't have character. At the testing point, they fell. You and I, we know we're messed up and we're certainly not innocent. But sometimes as Christ works in us, in this fallen world, this cursed world, there could be blessing that could come to the fore. Maybe you have an area of temptation that has really caused you to stumble over and over again. And you've wearied of it. And you finally decide you're not going to hide it anymore and you bring into play some very close friends you know could trust and you know will be trustworthy and they will not blab what you're sharing with them in confidence. And you say, every time I come to this place in my life, I seem to fall. Will you pray with me? Will you walk with me? And enter into the deliberate attempts to try to get over this. You read the Word, you pray. You pray. You bring those friends into play. Next time you're tempted with this thing, very deliberately, very consciously, you focus on this. And you get through it. Victory for the first time, since you don't know when. A couple weeks later, it happens again. And you're very deliberate. And your friends are praying for you, and they're walking with you, and you get through it. A couple weeks later, you get through it again. A couple weeks later, you get through it again. A couple weeks later, maybe you stumble, but you get back up. Pretty soon, the concentration of this, trusting God, obeying God, in the midst of the tension of a fallen world, something's starting to emerge. As a matter of fact, you start to develop habit. It becomes less and less intentional because you're starting to do it naturally. Aristotle said, uh, habit is man's second nature. And when we learn the rhythms of these patterns and we start doing it naturally, it becomes part of our character. And while Adam and Eve were innocent, you're developing virtue. And at some level, you're actually better than Adam and Eve were before the fall because in the struggle, you have been learning and growing in grace and something of the image of Christ is being restored in you. Don't get cocky. God always opens up the curtain a little bit at a time, right? And as soon as he's opened up that much and you see there's work to be done, if you start to get cocky, he'll open it up that wide. We've got work to do till we get to heaven. But in this fallen world, he's still at work. It would be better if we would have just obeyed him from the get go. But because we didn't, he's allowing us to re enter by grace coming in relationship with Christ, being resourced by the Holy Spirit, being given all of these gifts by God so that we could grow and things can get better. God is a pursuer. He initiates. It's possible to resist his grace but not thwart his persistent love and his purpose. He comes and gives. Psalm 1611, Thou make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, There are pleasures forevermore. How often we get it backwards and we substitute right-handed pleasures for the primary pleasure of relationship with him. James 1.17, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The gifts he gives to woo have a, a, what uh, Francis Thompson in The Hound of Heaven said, "A, a, a, a traitorous trueness to them. They're given to woo but never to replace and if we make them substitutes for God, the traitorous trueness is they will be true to him in that they won't fulfill us, and they'll be traitorous to us because we tethered our hearts to the wrong object. God gives gifts to woo, but never gifts to replace. And we can put our hearts towards those things C.S. Lewis called false infinites. Um, I would go on to say, too, that beyond the gift is always the giver. The gifts he gives have the propensity where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in. But God wants to give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of himself. You go to what I think is maybe the most poignant moment in the ministry of Christ, apart from his uh, agony in Gethsemane and his death and resurrection. And I think it's in John chapter 6. He's with his disciples. People have been with him for a couple days. They're hungry. And he decides he's going to feed them. He says to the disciples, "Um, we're going to feed these people. And Philip, he's got kind of a calculator mind. He's pressing the numbers. He says, a year's wages isn't going to be enough to give 5,000 plus people a morsel. And Andrew comes up. He says, Lord, I got these crumbs, five loaves and two fish. But what is that for so many? Jesus says, it's enough. Have them sit down. They sit down. He blesses the bread and the fish. And he starts to multiply them. And everybody eats, and everybody is satisfied. Oh, man, the people saw this, and they were just amazed. They wanted to make Jesus king. They were looking for an economic savior. They were looking for somebody who could uh, feed their bellies and take care of their economic needs. Jesus saw past it because he knew that they needed something far more important. He disperses the crowd, dismisses them, He goes up in the mountain to pray, but puts his disciples on a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. That's the night that he comes walking on the water. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they get there the next morning, these people are waking up. And guess what? They're hungry again. They say, where's Jesus? They hustle around the other side of the lake. They go across on boats, and they see him, and he's teaching. And they come up to him, and they said, Lord, Moses gave our fathers bread in the wilderness, and they did eat. He gave them daily manna. It's a new day. Where's the food? And Jesus says, your theology's a little off. It wasn't Moses who gave your father's bread in the wilderness and they did eat. It was my father who gave your father's bread in the wilderness and they did eat. You ate yesterday. You're hungry again. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for the bread that will satisfy forever and leads to eternal life. They said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. He says, okay, I will. I give you myself. Take me. Find your fulfillment in me. If you were weary of having messed things up, if you were weary of tethering to the things that can't satisfy, I give you myself. And it says that these people said, this is nuts. And they just left. He turns to the 12 disciples and he says to them, will you leave me also? Peter, to his credit, says, Lord, leave you. Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We could be thinking so materialistically, we could be thinking so horizontally that we don't understand what the deep needs are. And consequently, he comes. Augustine said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. I go down sometimes with students that we can call it through Uly's office. Uh, they have this uh, evangelism Chicago evangelism team. Sometimes we'll go down. I'll go down to the um, to the Ogilvy Transportation Center, and I'll go up to people. I think you have context. A contact evangelism where you just meet a person on the street, sort of like Jesus with the woman at the well or Paul at the Agora in Acts chapter 15. You have context evangelism where you find yourself thrown in a context with somebody else, sitting next to somebody on an airplane, maybe the person who works in the office cubicle next to you or your neighbor when they're mowing their lawn and you're mowing your lawn. And then you have friendship evangelism, which a lot of people say, I do friendship evangelism, and they never talk to their friends, Right. But we'll go down and contact, and, 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 and you want to understand the, 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 basically the protocols of each kind. There's certain respect you need to have for people. And so I would go down, and I would just say to people, my name is uh, Jerry Root, and I'm a professor at Wheaton College. I've got some students here. We're talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? Did you know 17 out of 20 want to talk? I think it's because Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless in a secularized society. Where does a person process the restlessness of their heart? I remember one time, it was two years ago this September, I walked up to this guy, and I said, my name's Jerry, and I'm here with some students at Wheaton College, and we're talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? He said, I'm Jewish. I said, that's how Jesus started out. (laughs) And he laughed. So if he laughed and we could be funny, then maybe it's not so oppressive as he might think it would be. And he said, listen, you're not going to get through to me. I'm Jewish. And this is our high holy day. I said, which high holy day is it? He says, it's Yom Kippur. I said, oh, the Day of Atonement. Do you believe your sins have been atoned for? He says, listen, I'm an Orthodox Jew. You're not going to get through to me. You're not going to change me. I said, no, you've already changed so what do you mean? I said this is a Friday night and if it's Yom Kippur how come you're not in temple? And he said well you're right I've changed a little. <laughs> I said what's your name? He said Daniel. I said Daniel do you know what your name means? He said no. I said it means God is my judge. And we started talking. I said Daniel what do you do? He says I'm I'm a playwright. I I write theater and perform plays in Chicago. I said, tell me about your plays. I'm fascinated. What makes for a good play? He said, human struggle. The struggles of the heart. And we started talking about that. It opened the door to the gospel because we're all broken. We want stuff fixed. At the end of 20 minutes, having a fascinating discussion, I said, what's your middle name? He said, Joshua. Joshua. I said, oh, that means Jesus is salvation. Your name, Daniel, God is my judge. Joshua is the whole gospel right in itself. (laughs) He's kind of scratching his head. I don't know what happened at the end of that. 20 minutes, he had to go catch a train. But nevertheless, people are looking for something to satisfy them. They're looking for God. And we get to tell them and point them. There are deep longings that we have in our heart. The, the, the big longings that most of us recognize is that, you know what? I didn't ask, how, how, how much longer do we go? I want to be sensitive to this. What time are we supposed to end? I'm, I'm not good. I need Jesus, sir. Well, anyway, let me just say a few things about some of the felt needs. Um, it, it, as you study the longings, you can read in Evelyn Underhill, you can read it in C.S. Lewis and stuff, they recognize that we all have a kind of pilgrim longing in us. We're looking for something. We're looking for some place. It's embedded in our literature. You, you go to the Aeneid by Virgil, and, 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 and Aeneas's Troy has been destroyed by the Greeks, and his wife who's died, and Hector who's died. Both their ghosts come and say, flee the city, go start a new city. And so he flees Troy, and he's on his way on a quest to build a new city, a new place. What's the place going to be? Rome. And he's a man caught between the two cities. Augustine didn't like the ancient myths, but he liked that one because he said, it's indicative of the human condition. We are people of two cities, the city of our birth and the city that will one day be. It's like Abraham. He went out from Ur the Chaldees because he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. How many of you like Tolkien, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings? What about the Hobbit? In the bottom of a hole, there lived a Hobbit. And it wasn't a hole with oozy bits of worm coming through. It was a Hobbit hole, and that meant comfort. And Hobbits don't like to travel. They're comfortable in their shire. And all of a sudden, this wizard named Gandalf interrupts everything and tells Bilbo Baggins that he's going to be visited by 13 dwarves. What's the problem with the dwarves? Their ancestral home who's been taken by a dragon named Smaug. And they need to go on a quest to reclaim their ancestral home. And Gandalf votes for for Bilbo being the 14th member of this group because you can't have a quest with 13 people. That's an unlucky number. So Bilbo is interrupted and he ends up on this journey and he hates the whole thing. First night he has to sleep on hard ground rather than his soft feather bed back at his hobbit hole. He longs for home. The first day, his provisions go bad. He longs for the fresh food in his larder back at his hobbit hole. Matter of fact, the first time they face danger, the trolls, William, Bert, and Tom. This is a guy, Tolkien's a guy whose characters are named Gandalf, Gladriel, Elrond. What does he name his trolls? William, Tom, and Bert. So this is, you know... <laughs> And if you're here and your name's William, Tom, and Bert, I don't mean to do you harm. I'm just saying it's kind of funny how Tolkien does this. He's in danger, and he longs for the safety, relative safety, of his hobbit hole. Eighteen times in that book, Bilbo Baggins longs for home. What's he doing? He's helping dwarves who long for their home. When he finally gets back to his home after being gone a year, He finds that his relatives, the Sackville Bagginses, have declared him dead, and they're dividing up his stuff, the home that he's longed for. It's not the same place. What's Tolkien doing? He's deliberate about this. He's trying to make us hungry for the real home that we should all be hungry for, the pilgrim longing. I remember when my son was young, my oldest son. He's 41 now. But when he was about 10 years old at Wheaton College, if they ever needed a child in a play, they'd always call up and say, could Jeremy come down and audition for this part? They were doing the adaptation of Great Expectations by by, um, Charles Dickens. And he was going to play the part of young Pip. He had the majority of the lines for the first third of the play. He loved it. He was living the life of a college student. If we couldn't find him at home, we'd go up to the dorm, and we'd find him with one of his thespian friends in their room with their earphones on, rocking out to their music, you know. He goes through all the rehearsals, two and a half months. He goes through 14 performances. And when they're done, I go to pick him up. And he finds out that the tradition at Wheaton College is that the theater students don't leave until they've dismantled the set. This was, a, this was a world he came to love, and now he's seeing it destroyed before him. He said, Dad, i got to sit down. He looked like Obi-Wan Kenobi when that planet blew up, and he knew there was a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and after 15 minutes of watching this, I said, Come on, Jeremy, we've got to go. He shuffles out to the car like an old man. We get to the car, and he said, Dad, I just didn't want it to end. I said, Oh, Jeremy, it's the nature of every play that it has to come to an end. It's the nature of every holiday and every vacation that will have to come to an end. It's the nature of every year in school it will have to come to an end. It's the nature of your childhood that it will one day come to an end. I think you're longing for the one thing that never has to end. And he looked at me and he said, do you mean heaven, Dad? Do you mean heaven? I said, yeah. People long for this. Two weeks ago I was in Houston and I was at the hotel and I'm standing waiting for the elevator and this woman walks up. And I just said to her, well, well, what's your name? She said, Linda. I said, Linda, are you from Houston? She said, actually, I am. I said, well, what are you doing in a hotel then? She said, well, I had damage in my house. They had all those storms, you know, in Houston. And then she said, I've also got a house down by Baton Rouge. Remember, they had the big storm in New Orleans. And she said, both my houses were damaged. I said, wow, that's horrible. We live in a world where things aren't always safe. And she said, yep, it's true. And I said, yet we long for safety. What's that about? If the world's never been safe, where did that longing come from? Isn't it a heaven longing? Isn't the longing to make sense of our experience a heaven longing? How about love? We long for relationship because we are made by a God who loves us. And as we refocus on Him, we begin to discover there's something fundamental about a relationship with Him. Have you ever felt lonely before in your life? What does that tell you about your nature? If you felt hungry, it tells you you need food. If you felt thirsty, it tells you you need drink. If you felt lonely, doesn't that strongly suggest to you that you were made for some relationship no mere human relationship could ever satisfy? You're made for relationship. How about brokenness? Do you long to have what's in you fixed? These are Godward longings. God who made us for himself embedded these things in us that... They will woo us back to him, hopefully. All right, so putting this all together, I want to suggest one last thing. And it relates to the passage we read at the beginning of our time. I I remember when I became a Christian. I read through the Bible that first year. And I was shocked by what I saw. I thought everybody in the Bible was supposed to be perfect, have their act all together. And I saw how messed up everybody was. And I thought, these are my people. I was taught that if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, I think I mentioned this last time I was here, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me, I'd just go straight to hell. I was taught in a Sunday school class as a little boy, if I had the holy and righteous life all my life, but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. What I deduced from that as an eight- or nine-year-old boy was if I could lose this relationship by virtue of what I did, I would have to gain it by virtue of what I did. And I was always in trouble, so I assumed I was going to hell. And I read through the Bible that first time after somebody had clarified for me, no, Christ loves you. Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. He's willing to enter your life and begin the process of remaking you. I was overwhelmed by that good news. So I read through the Bible, and I, again, I was shocked that all these people were messed up. I understood it. And then I got to the end of the Bible and found I was so utterly disappointed. It says at the end, worthy as uh, the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty forever and ever the myriads and myriads of angels, the voices of all the people gathered before the throne, praising God, singing hallelujah, and so on. And I go, that seems boring to me. And I just didn't, I didn't get it. I thought it was very anticlimactic. The next year, I read through the Bible from cover to cover, and guess what? When I got to the end, they were still doing it. <laughs> I thought, what are they seeing that I'm missing? And I remember over the years, as I would think about this, there came a moment, I used to do work behind the Iron Curtain. And I remember being a month behind the Iron Curtain. Two weeks in Romania, two weeks in the Czech Republic. Czechoslovakia then. And I was hassled by the secret police in Romania under Ceaușescu's day. It was not a comfortable time. I finally, after being weary of a month, working with people who, who were so courageous in their faith, I didn't feel like I deserved to breathe the same air they breathed. I was amazed at the believers and their courage. But it was still weary. And when I got to Czech Republic, I got to Prague, and I had a half day by myself after a month of being gone from my family and working in that environment. I don't know if you've ever been to Prague. It's the most beautiful city I've ever seen. High up on the top of the hill, there's a cathedral called St. Vita's Cathedral. And I walked in there, and I saw stained glass the likes of which I've never seen before and it took my breath away. And I went to the third window on the left, the window that was done by Alphonse Muka, who was the father of the Art Nouveau movement. And it's the story of Christianity coming to the Slavic peoples. And I've never seen such vibrancy of color and stained glass before. And I said, oh, my heavens. And I sat there for over an hour and just looked at it. I knew I had to go meet some people, and I... It broke my heart that I was going to have to leave that scene. I have been back to see that window no less than 12 times in my life. One time I was walking through the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I was there with my wife, Claudia, and some very close friends, of another professor at Wheaton College, Yuli, you know him, uh, Mark Lewis. And, and, and we're going through the museum, and I came to Van Gogh, Cypress is in a wheat field. It's a turbulent picture, You can see the amber waves of grain almost moving. You see the clouds billowy and rolling, and you can almost feel the wind coming off the canvas. And I'm standing there, and you know the vibrancy of Van Gogh's colors and so on. And I'm standing there in front of this thing for at least a half hour. And all of a sudden, people are gathering around, and I realize I've got the center place. I'm hogging it up. This is very unthoughtful of me, but I was lost in the picture. I backed up. And I backed into a bench. I don't know who put the bench there, but I was grateful. It was bolted down. I sat down and I looked at the picture for a little bit longer. About 20 minutes later, I realized, wait a minute, where are Mark and Mary and Claudia? And you know how those museums have those wide doors that go from room to room? I looked down that way. I didn't see them. I looked down that way. I didn't see them. You know what else I didn't see? A bench. They put a bench in front of that painting because enough people had had the objective experience of being in awe of that painting. I've been back to see that painting probably five to seven times. I remember once working at Honey Rock Camp up in the north woods near, near um, Lake Superior. And one night I was teaching there one summer and the students came knocking on my door and they said, Jerry, at midnight, they're out, they're out. I said, what, what? I came out. It was the northern lights and reds and blues and greens and just moving all over the sky. And we went out to the ski dock and stood there for two and a half hours watching the glory of this event, doing what seemed only just to render to this thing its due to sing songs of praise to God and worship God and honor Him and glorify Him for the beauty. Maybe you haven't seen those things, but every one of you has seen a sunset that's taken your breath away. And you grieved as it dissolved before you in the hope that maybe God who's generous with these things would give you another one on another day or a rainbow that captures the vision of all the people who see it. And I started to say, wow. I wonder if these people before the throne see something in God that is so breathtaking. They want to orient their whole life around that. Praise God him and to get shoulder to shoulder with people as they share the gospel refocused on him and explaining to them the glory they have perceived in him well we'll stop there for tonight let's pray father i worship you for the glory for the beauty for the majesty i worship you that though we had fallen You want to restore the image of Christ in us. And you have pursued us. And you have wooed us. And we get distracted sometimes, but still you are relentless. I pray, Father, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand with greater and greater clarity. And in the process of gaining that understanding, not waiting until the understanding is complete before we engage in mission, but as we wait in the process, And as we engage in the process, that we would also engage in the communication of the great matchless love that you have for us in a way that will fulfill us and in a way that will fulfill others. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.